Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, you know him as Rodney the Pod Zabriskie. What's up, man? Hey, I am doing great. Glad to be here. Glad for an exciting interview today. Okay, so we were fortunate to have a great conversation with a longtime partner, Dr. Buck Joffrey, host of the Wealth Formula Podcast and a serial entrepreneur. Um, one of the things I liked about the the interview, Rod, and I like several things, um, Buck always has a lot of insights, but one of the things that stood out to me was this idea of focusing on investing in real estate, but doing it as a business. And really one of our core, you know, kind of one of his core messages was that treating each of those things, like any opportunities more like a business is really what gives you the opportunity to take things up a notch. So anyway, that was a really cool part of the interview. Yeah. And and I think that speaks of kind of the way that he has done things himself, uh, just in terms of systematizing the real estate, but, but in other things as well, we, he hosts the Wealth Formula podcast and has other uh, investment opportunities that he offers to people. He's obviously building kind of a community. He talks a couple of times in the in the interview about his investor club. And uh, so he just he's kind of taken that idea and really made it work in a lot of different directions. Okay, so Rod, we get into this at the beginning of the episode, but give us just a little bit about a little bit of Buck's background before he uh, became a serial entrepreneur and podcast host. Yeah. So he, uh, is a former head and neck surgeon slash plastic surgeon and spent a few years doing that. And then kind of saw the light, uh, came over to the alternative (laughs) investing side. And, uh, in addition to becoming prolific in his investments and like, especially with the real estate, uh, he started the podcast, well, the formula podcast, and again, has built this, this community of, like-minded people who are all kind of pursuing the same kind of thing. He does regular meetups. Uh, he, I think he talks about one of those uh, at the latter end of the call. And uh, anyway, just has a lot of cool things going on. Okay, Rod. Well, without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Dr. Buck Joffrey. We are very excited to have with us one of our long-term partners, Dr. Buck Joffrey, serial entrepreneur. Buck, Thank you so much for coming on with us. We're excited to have you. Of course. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're just going to dive right in, Buck. You didn't start out as a prolific real estate investor and podcast host like you are today. You were in medicine. Like, Talk a little bit about how you got into medicine first, and then we'll move into the next jump. Well, if you think about the way society is right now, you know, like these days, right? It's always built in the US. It's like you have, you go, everybody goes to school, you go to elementary school, and then you move up to middle school and high school and all that. And it's almost like, you know, this, this whole process was started, um, you know, around the industrial revolution. So you can almost see it as this like conveyor belt, you know, spitting out uh, worker products. And, and, you know, along that conveyor belt, what ends up happening is, you know, some products end up being a little bit better and, and some a little bit worse and some end up, you know, being the best products of the whole system. And, 
and 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 that creates a workforce. And I think that that's kind of this trap that we're in, um, especially for I think people who are really good students, right? If you're a really good student, I would argue that you're at you have a major disadvantage uh, to the entrepreneurial path. And here's why: what people love is to be accepted. People love to be rewarded and and told they're doing great things. And if you're a great student and in high school and in college or whatever, you, you're just going to keep feeding off of that Pavlovian, you know, feeding frenzy, right? Like everybody thinks you're great. Why would you go off into some other area uh, where you could potentially fail? Right. And so that's kind of the trap I was in. So I was in the trap that I didn't even really understand what entrepreneurship was. I, um, so I was a good student and then, you know, I was kind of driven. So, uh, college, you know, you know, what are you going to do? I kind of liked history. And then I was like, I can't really do anything with history. Let me do biochemistry and molecular biology. And then what do you do with that? Well, I could go in a lab and be, (laughs) you know, lab. You'd be a scientist, right? Yeah. 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 Or I could be a doctor. Okay. So I guess I'll be a doctor. (laughs) <laughs> that's really what it was. Right? It's, I guess I'll be a doctor. That sounds good too. Right. I mean, it sounds cool. Like, Hey, I'm going to be a doctor. Um, and then, so I was in med school and driving to med school, I was listening to a radio show it was national public radio and Dr. Ben Carson, who was a neurosurgeon uh, uh, yes. was being interviewed. And I never thought about neurosurgery, but I remember Carson saying that he, he said, Somebody asked him, why did you think, how'd you know you're going to be a good neurosurgeon? He's like, oh, I have really good hand-eye coordination. Like, I'm good at <laughs> ping pong and things like that. <laughs> so here I am driving down the road, and I say, oh, my God, I'm good at ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. So then we get to school, and I'm telling everybody, everybody's like, what are you, you going to specialize in? I'm like, uh, neurosurgery. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> Because I'm good at ping pong. It just makes sense. Yeah. There's there's a big, there's, you know, uh, I will say that I'll I'll finish this this part of the story just saying that that came full circle when I actually interviewed at Johns Hopkins. I interviewed with Ben Carson. Oh, Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. And his junior partner. And I was telling his junior partner um, the story and he thought it was hilarious. And he's like, he's like, Hey, do you want to play? Uh, do you want to, you know, do you want to play a game against uh, Ben Carson? You know, and he brings out <laughs> one of those portable little uh, foosball machines. Um, anyway, Carson, Carson has no sense of humor. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> no going for it. Huh? it, it, it <laughs> I mean, he brought it out, but then he just kind of looked at him and he looked at me and he's like, yeah, not, not no, happening. He's a humorless <laughs> dude. Uh, so yeah, so I went down that pathway, ended up, uh, you know, like I said, you know, doing well and, and living the, uh, the golden handcuffs dream. And then, um, r- one day finishing residency, I ended up finishing and had an neck surgery and, and plastic surgery. Um, I, after I trained, I was, um, kind of burned out of academics. I thought I was gonna be an academic guy. And the next thing you know, I accidentally read a Kiyosaki book. I read Cash Flow Quadrant, and it's sort of ludicrous in 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 um, in hindsight to to understand why that book had such an effect on me. Like hmm. it's it's 
it's so simplistic, right? But I think it's yeah. a paradigm shift. I think that's what it is. That's why it affects people. It's like, it's not like, you know, Shakespearean prose or something like that, <laughs> right? right? I mean, but it's like so basic, you know, and, 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 and all of a sudden, this finance world and stuff like that sounded really interesting. And so it sort of unleashed um, in an entrepreneurial animal in me. And the next thing you know, I kept starting businesses and, uh, you know, ended up uh, ultimately in real estate. And uh, that's my story. But do you, did you ever work for somebody else or, cause I know you started businesses like pretty close, pretty soon after you were trained. Like, did you actually yeah. ever work for other people? Yeah. So when I start, so I started by, um, so I went to the, you know, complete dark side from the academic world and I, um, finished training and there was this company back in the day called lifestyle lift and they were doing like these facelifts and they were saying they were not facelifts. And <laughs> anyway, like, um, it was an opportunity to do an enormous number of facelifts in a short period of time. So like in, you know, uh, you know, and, um, you could end up doing six, 700 facelifts a year. And wow. that's something like, you know, in the old days, that would be like very few doctors would do that in an entire 20, 30 year career. So, yeah. so I took it on and I did it and I was actually pretty good at it. And then that was another thing that ultimately kind of fueled me towards entrepreneurship is what happened was, you know, like about three months into this, I'm like, this is, this is great money. I mean, I'm making like literally, 10 times more than I did as a resident, which isn't much by the way. Mm -hmm. And, 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 but, but wait a second, there's a guy at the top here and he's the one who's making a lot more money than me. I should do something different. Right. So then I had this idea, maybe I'll do the same thing, but I'll do it with liposuction. Um, and, uh, my, uh, wife at the time, my ex-wife now, but she, she's, she, you're so, you're so, uh, I can't believe you think you can do this. This is so <laughs> ludicrous. You're, you're such an ego. And I was like, why? Why couldn't I do this? She's like, well, you've never even done liposuction. I'm like, so what? <laughs> <laughs> You'll figure it out. Details. That was the least of my concerns. So anyway, I actually ended up building a, a liposuction business and she never doubted me again. Mm. But, um, and then I was like the busiest lipo guy in, in Chicago. And then from there, it just kind of took off and did, uh, other things. But um, to your question about, did I have a job? Yeah. When they found out I wanted to do that, because I had a loud mouth and I just want to tell everybody, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this. They just fired me because they're like, <laughs> like all right, oh, that's, that's Buck's experience, hired and fired. And he was hired like, fired. I better go and do something else. It's about, yeah, I think I was dutifully employed for like eight or nine months. All right. <laughs> yeah, sounds yeah. about right. That's yeah. hilarious. Okay. So but even after you went and started your own thing, you, you kind of described it as you're still on this conveyor belt. You have the golden handcuffs on because now you're making a lot of money doing it. Right. So yeah. to walk away from it would be crazy. But but you did. But I but did. How did right. you end up at real estate? What was the, what was well, the journey okay, there? So here I am. So I did. So I did this uh, this lipo thing and it was making, you know, really good money. Um, you know, I was in my early 30s making over a million a year and I was like, you know, this, this is great. Right. Yeah. Um, and what happened though, is that over time, like I was, you know, I definitely had this bug. I like wanted to keep starting business. So I had like a lot of these little, little businesses I kept trying to do. Um, I actually ended up starting another medical business that was very lucrative for a, 
period of time as well. And um, I ended up with a bunch of money. So what do you do with a bunch of money at that point? Yeah. Um, about real estate because, well, first, because Robert Kiyosaki told me to, right? <laughs> and uh, also because, you know, the reality is my dad, my dad uh, was in, is in real estate. He's been in real estate for 60 years now. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, uh, whereas a lot of people learn about real estate being the risky asset, you know, mm-hmm. the alternative asset, like has a nose ring and purple hair or something like that. <laughs> um, it To me, it was like the safe thing because that's what I grew up with. So I bought yeah. real estate and um, I don't know, first I was buying apartment buildings on my own and I was making, you know, some pretty good cash flows and money and, you know, pretty significant returns when I sold the properties. So then I got this, I, this, uh, this idea that, you know, you can do things bigger and bring people along for the ride. And that's really how real estate syndication started mm. for me. Mm. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Okay. Buck, mm. what, uh, what can you, what advice do you give? You talk to physicians all the time, obviously, Um, Mm -hmm. you attract physicians to your podcast. So like, what advice do you give to, uh, maybe not just physicians, but people who are wanting to try to move from a high income job to entrepreneurial to, to become entrepreneurial? Well, I think first of all, uh, you know, I think, uh, the, I would say don't quit your day job because (laughs) the money first, right? Yeah. I think that the challenge is this, okay? The challenge is that, um, you know, it depends when you're, you you decide you want to do something. When I, when I started out uh, doing the entrepreneurial stuff, my first daughter was, you know, just born. And I was like, you know what? I got, I got about 18 years to figure this one out before I have to like worry about college and all that stuff. So I have plenty of time to screw up, you know? <laughs> yep. And it was a really calculated that way. Like Mm -hmm. I have plenty of time to screw up right now. So I'll just go and try it out. Um, I think that for people who are like further along in their career, I mean, then you do have this issue with golden handcuffs. And I think it becomes um, very difficult if you're, you know, if you're a a physician and, you know, you're making six, $700,000 a year and all of a sudden you've got a couple of kids who are needing to go to college pretty soon. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can't just be like, oh, I think I'm going to quit and, you know, give it a shot here in the real estate thing. It's probably not a good idea. I mean, that's where you would, you know, with some real estate shows, it, it sort of sounds like that's, you know, that's a suggestion. You do hear that a lot. You know, but I don't think it's a good idea. Um, I do think that, again, looking at real estate as an investment vehicle, for most people, real estate is best as an investment vehicle, not as a job, Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where, you know, people who listen to me who are in our, you know, investor, uh, ecosystem, that's kind of where they fall. They're like, okay, I make my money, but I need to, and I want to grow my money. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in real estate. I'm interested in other kinds of assets. Um, and that's, that's kind of my advice. I think that that's a better way to go. Now, if you, uh, if you are just, a, have a burning desire to be an entrepreneur. Like it was, I think there is a genetic component to being an entrepreneur a little bit mm. because my dad is one and um, he's, you know, he's, he's, 
he was kind of crazy like I was. He was like doing all sorts <laughs> of different things, right? Like I'm very, I feel like I'm very different from him, but it's kind of frightening to me how behaviorally when it came to business and stuff, we were the same. Mm -hmm. um, but, that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, if you're born an entrepreneur, you know, like our my friend, you probably know George Newberry, American yeah. Home Preservation. Yep, yep. You know, George is, George is like, I mean, he's another example and even more so than me, like born entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. And so it, I think it's kind of funny is that if you go and you look at the Argentinian airport, it's called George Newberry International Airport. And it, as it ends up, that was his grandfather. Oh, wow. Who was That's like crazy. this crazy aviation guy in Argentina who ultimately crashed and burned apparently. But, wow, but wow. it just goes to show there's a gene there. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. That's okay. So you, you start investing in real estate, yeah. uh, but then you kind of start taking it to a different level. You, you mm -hmm. begin to develop this idea of the wealth formula, right? So your, yeah. your business obviously is called wealth formula, but, but it stands for something, right? So yeah. how did you come up with your wealth formula and what is it? Well, I mean, I think like, I don't know how I came up with it. I think I just put down what are the elements that I believe really can create wealth and uh, that you've got to have them. And if you figure this out, then you have a better chance of creating wealth quickly. So um, so I borrowed from uh, Newtonian physics, as a good student would do. That's yours. <laughs> and had the, as a momentum uh, equation, right? Like, so it's mass times vol velocity. And um, so it was like momentum of wealth, right? But, and, and it's, and I, we can still use the mass and velocity terms. Mass is like, okay, how much do you actually invest? You got to put some money in to invest if you're going to actually make some money. I mean, I don't care what your returns are. If you don't invest much, it's not going to help. Mm -hmm. um, and velocity is is a concept that's basically what, what it, you know, your returns, your IRR, whatever. But the way I often look at it is how, how long it takes to get your invested capital out of a deal and into another opportunity so that you're continuously multiplying the effect exponentially of the same capital going into multiple opportunities. Um, and then the last component of it uh, is leverage. Uh, and leverage is, um, for the most part, it's anything that can help you, uh, you know, if you think about it in terms of what a lever is. But in practical terms, it's debt. And it's good debt. And here's, I think, fundamentally where, uh, you know, conventional advice for individuals uh, differs from what I, uh, I say. I mean, I think people, a lot of people are really scared of debt, right? Yeah. But mm -hmm. they don't really necessarily differentiate between what, you know, Robert Kiyosaki would call good debt and bad debt. And good debt is essentially allowing you to make more money amplifying your returns. And I will go as far as to say that I do not believe it is possible to move from one wealth uh, level to the next, like a substantial level going from being like a, you know, $300,000 per year person to a, you know, to a $2 million per year person. I don't believe you can, you can do that without using, uh, without using some level of debt. 
I don't think you can exponentially increase your net worth without doing it. And I think the only ways that, you know, most people can get to the, you know, higher echelon of wealth is by utilizing that, unless you're an entertainer or a sports star or something like that. So, but with, you know, you think about like the way most people invest, right? And they just got money in the markets and stuff and it's going seven, eight percent, whatever. Um, maybe if you're lucky, maybe, maybe you don't. But whereas in, in, in real estate, what we're trying to do is we're, um, with the wealth formulas, what we're trying to do is like really make those numbers pop, right? Like we don't, we want to try to double our money more than every 10 years or so. We want to try to double it in every three to three years or so, you know? And you guys have done, um, I mean, your investment offerings have done extremely well. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Um, Buck, you were early on in the podcast space. So before we jump into kind of the in, the real estate investor side um, in more detail, how did you get it or what? I mean, you were, you've probably been doing it, what, five or six years and and maybe uh, like what inspired it? How did you get there? You were obviously early on and, and have done really well with it. It's funny when you, somebody's early on and it's been like six, seven years, right? Like <laughs> yeah, right. A pioneer in the space. <laughs> You're um, so I started listening to podcasts and, um, what, and, and again, going back to this, like, I've got money in my pocket. What do I do with it? I don't know. Let me try to learn. And real estate sounded like it made a lot of sense, but my dad never really taught me anything and I needed to learn. And so I was listening to a bunch of podcasts and what ended up happening was that like any given podcast, there would be one show, maybe every five or six weeks that was actually related to me. Most of them were, you know, getting out of your cubicle and all this other stuff. I didn't have a problem. I wasn't worried about making a hundred grand, right? Like that was not my issue. My, my issue was trying to place seven figures per year. And, um, and so because I couldn't really find the solution at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, I, I'm just going to start my own podcast. And, you know, I was young, had a lot of energy, <laughs> Six, seven years ago, <laughs> back in the day, back in the day, back in the oh, day. a lot of energy and I did, I did it. And, um, and I actually think I started, you know, I actually started it and did like two or three shows and then quit for like a year because, mm -hmm. because what happened was uh, the first two or three shows, I was like, how many listeners do I have? five <laughs> that's me four times oh, yeah those are oh gosh yeah right. well okay so thanks to you buck we had uh the fortune the good fortune of not having to start out with five listeners yeah we had a few people that uh already listened to you that came over but it's yeah. it's a drag trying to get the trying to get the wheel going right takes yeah. time yeah yeah um it's, it's okay painful. cool sometimes. <laughs> but you stuck with it, man. It's a, yeah. there's a lot to say to that. Um, okay. So we talked a little bit about alternative investing. Let's talk a little bit about why you like alternative investing as opposed to more traditional market investing. You know, I think that for me personally, um, what it just comes down to is what makes sense um, to me personally. Like, you know, uh, personal finance is personal. And so you have to figure out what it is that resonates with you. I'm not of this school that I think you just, you say, I'm not smart enough to 
manage my money. So I'm going to hand it off to some other guy who's, you know, got a six month course and, and all this, and makes a lot less money than you to manage <laughs> your money. Right. Right. Yep. So, so my, my, so I kind of look at the way I do personal finances. It's a little bit harder, right? Because it actually requires some level of effort, but you know, mm. um, that's the price you pay, uh, for, you know, getting higher returns in my opinion. So, um, why do I, I, I don't really have exposure to the stock market except for, uh, opportunities. Maybe I got into on a financing route, uh, around of an IPO or something like that. Hmm. Don't really buy stuff in the stock market. It's not, I won't say that I would never would. I mean, if the floor completely falls out again, maybe I do grab some, but, um, and the main reason I don't is because it's not anything other than I don't really understand it. I just don't really understand it. Like, you know, the valuations of these, you know, tech stocks and things like that are so insane. And, you know, markets are going up and down based on news every day. It, I mean, it's funny because sometimes in, you know, as you know, in the physician ecosystem, they just make it seem like, Oh yeah, you know, you just do this and you do that. Um, and then you're going to end up with three or 4% per year, uh, to live on after that. But it, it, it's really not that easy, right? Like there's an entire market behind it. There are publicly traded businesses behind it. Um, and so for me, I feel a lot more comfortable investing in things that I completely understand. I completely mm -hmm. understand. Like, you know, as you know, we, uh, a big component is apartment buildings. Our group's probably, you know, got a billion and a half under management now. And, and, you know, this is, this is really obvious stuff, right? Like you get, people need to live somewhere. They live somewhere in order to do so they pay rent. Okay. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a valuation, certainly if you want to sell and buy this stuff and the, those are based on cap rates, but fundamentally the business model is pretty obvious. Right. Um, and, um, and so I, I like investing in things that I understand. And that's, that's really critical. And I like investing in things that generally I can see as well. I can see it, touch it. And I know yeah. what it is. It's real, not just, you know, not just paper. Although, you know, certainly with, obviously with some of the insurance products, arguably you could say they're, they're, you know, they they are paper, but they are also assets uh, and predictable mm -hmm. assets. So, okay. So then from that, you get into real estate, obviously inside the alternative space, especially multifamily, so talk to us about the benefits beyond just the regular return profile of yeah. investing in multifamily real estate. Well, I think, you know, the thing, the thing that people who do not invest in real estate um, don't really understand is it's like completely, it's completely unfair to everybody else <laughs> who doesn't invest in real estate. Yeah. It's so crazy how unfair it is, right? Like, the tax advantages are ludicrous. Like yeah. you really, you know, I remember, and um, you know, there's the, the Donald Trump uh, thing about him not paying taxes. And it was like, yeah, no kidding. Why? Of course he's got massive amounts of depreciation, yeah. right? Massive amounts of depreciation and that kind of thing. So, you know, listen, at the end of the day, the, the government rewards people who own real estate by creating significant uh, benefits in the form of tax write-offs, 
even though you know pretty much every property we know just tends to appreciate over time and you know we force value in them with value add as well uh the from the tax perspective uh the irs allows us to depreciate as if that's like you know equipment that's going to go out of business in 27 and a half years right mm -hmm. yeah and so so we have that advantage we have the advantage of you know the we take debt we have lots of debt and that the amount of debt often um you know first of all obviously you can you can uh you can take off the interest uh, you can write that off as well um but the amount of leverage that you can take on real estate is really uh, incredible, right? Because so if you take a, you know, $70 million building uh, and, you know, you're, you may get, you know, you may have end up with like 70% leverage on there, right? And then you're paying like 30%, yep. right? And then you're paying 30%, you're bringing that equity from your investors or whatever. And the beautiful thing about depreciation right now is there's additional laws called, you know, cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation yeah. that essentially allow you in some cases, in most cases to, to essentially invest and write off everything that you invest. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it, again, it's just, it's unfair. It's unfair. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, it's like, how are they let this happen? I don't know. I don't know, but I'll, mm -hmm. I'll take it. You know. Yeah. And, and in the debt vein, I've also heard you talk about uh, the, like the advantages of inflation as yeah, it relates to that's, the fact that that's you're carrying exactly, debt, right? That's exactly right. I mean, so you think about inflation and again, people who are sitting on no debt, bunch of cash, what's happening? They're losing money, mm -hmm. losing money every day in purchasing power. You know, inflation goes up by eight or nine percent in a year that means you know you basically lost eight or nine percent yeah but the beauty is if you owe somebody money you owe them the same amount of money regardless of inflation so inflation erodes debt yeah and that is it's like printing money mm -hmm. that's what it is it's like yeah. printing your own money so that's a good take i like mm -hmm. that yeah Okay, so inside of the real, the multifamily, you talked about the 1.5 billion that you have in the in the multifamily, and a lot of that is we know with Western Wealth, you have a great track record uh, with them, and then obviously with other syndication groups that you're with. Um, but what are you looking for when you put together a deal? I mean, it, it's so from our perspective, it it's very formulaic, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I it's it's kind of boring stuff, like it's a lot of um, you know, it's, it's a lot of tables and graphs and, and understanding, I get, you know, first thing you're going to do is you got to start with like, where are you going to buy the stuff? And then you have all of the demographics and the work, um, you know, the, the numbers in terms of how many people are moving into the area, how many more jobs are coming in, mm -hmm. things like that. Once you get down to that, then you pick your markets, then you got to, and then pick your properties and your properties are, uh, now people invest in different kinds of properties, right? They, um, there's different business plans. And, and as you mentioned with Western wealth, our big one there, um, and actually, you know, with Turo as well, which is my mm -hmm. other group, the, um, the goal is value add. Now, what does that mean? Value add? Well, you can buy real estate and, and do what, what you would call maybe a buy and hope model, which is you buy, and then you just collect rents 
and then you don't do much with it and then you just sell it and hope that you get more than you paid for it. Um, or the beauty again with real estate is that it is a real asset that you can manipulate. Hmm. And so you can get in there and you can know what the market comps are. You can know what types of rent people are getting for various types of um, uh, rental properties. And if you determine that there's a lot of room on the upside, then you can go in, improve your property and use that insider information, which is perfectly legal in real estate. Yeah. And you can, you know, raise your rents accordingly. Now that, what that does is it creates this opportunity to, um, again, because commercial real estate of all kind, it's not based on the way we buy houses. You know, you look at a house, yeah, I, think, I think it's all, you know, worth what they're asking for. That's not how it works. It works basically on, again, it works on, you know, you have a certain amount of income and net operating income and that net operating income trades at a certain valuation. So if you can drive up net operating income, you can drive up the amount of, of uh, value to that property. And because you have tremendous amounts of leverage, mm -hmm. it is, that's how you can end up routinely, you know, doubling money every three years or so. You kind of answered this in this one, but I want to just hit it, uh, hit it really directly. I've heard you talk about being in the business of real estate versus yeah. investing in real estate. Maybe just hit on that more directly. What is, what's the difference between them? Yeah, I think, um, so the business, so the way I distinguish it, so when I first started buying apartment buildings, I was kind of a landlord, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I had property management and stuff, but I was really like, you know, still kind of a one man show. And it's sort of like having, you know, a coffee shop that's not Starbucks, you know, it's just named after yourself, you know, and you, you kind of Bucks run this coffee, show. Bucks coffee. Right. Although I mostly caffeine pills these days, but it's too lazy to even make a cup of coffee. Um, anyway, so, so, so what I realized was that, and I think if you look at it from a small scale uh, and up, you, you would agree. I think most people would agree that I think often people do businesses and work really hard and they work really, really hard. And, and another person works really, really hard but they make incredibly different amounts of money, hmm. right? Um, so in the same vein, what I realized was that, listen, you can, owning an apartment building by yourself and not having um, essentially a, a structure or an asset that's big enough to have employees, to have on-site services and so on, you're going to make a lot more money in that property and you're not going to actually spend any more time. You might even spend less time because all of a sudden you've transitioned from being a landlord to owning a small business because mm. a 50, 60, $70 million apartment building is a small business. It is not, it's not just, you know, right. a piece of real estate. It has, you know, huge amounts of, you know, you've got, you've got employees, you got all sorts of things going on. Uh, maintenance and, you know, rehabs and all that. And so from a scalability standpoint, it just made sense to, you know, to, for me 
to say, okay, I can spend a certain amount of time, but if I spend it on this vocation instead of the other, I can make literally 10 times as much money. So, so putting that together with, with what you talked about earlier with the Western wealth and that kind of thing, what, what makes your process unique from some of the other syndicators? Yeah. You know, I think, I think, um, for me, um, you know, I, I think that if you look at what we've been able to do, I think our track record speaks for itself. And I don't, I know there's certainly others out there who've done it. Um, you know, Kenny, Kenny McElroy was, you know, a guy, I feel like I learned a lot from early on and I, he's a great guy, tremendous track record. Um, but you know, we've, we've had, you know, 34 dispositions in the last, uh, seven or eight, eight years. And, and, you know, we've, we've averaged over 30% annualized returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's, that's not a fluke when that happens, right? right. Like that's not a fluke. Um, and you could argue we had a, some, um, you know, we had some wind at our back, but a lot of these numbers were done before the inflation, uh, the whole inflation thing really kicked in as well. Um, I also think that we are, you know, we are really focused on speed trying to yeah. get things done quickly. And the reason that that's important is that before this whole interest rate uh, thing happened, what we could do is we could go in there pretty quickly and create so much value, essentially do some kind of a refinance program and get people like, you know, at least half their money out uh, in you know 12 or 18 months. And then they have the same equity, but then they take that money and put it into some other deal. Yeah, that velocity you're talking about earlier, right? That velocity again, and so so I think that that's pretty unique. Right now, um, you know, we've slowed down all, a lot. I think most responsible uh, syndicators have done that too because the market is not really corrected for the changes in interest rates. But uh, yeah, I, I do think that, and I also think that if you look at, um, you know, we t- we. T- we <laughs> We take this very seriously, you know, and we have professional management, professional teams. I mean, it's like, to me, it's, it's very different from, you know, Hey, I got a couple of guys with some jobs who are, you know, they're going to take down this $40 million building and you guys want to, you guys want to invest, but you know, it seems funny, right? But that's kind of the way a lot of the podcast real estate, you know, the real estate podcast ecosystem ends up being right. Yeah, it's like, so you, right. You just got to make sure you're with people who have like a, an actual track record, right? right. Yeah, because they do yeah. pop up everywhere. They have popped up over the last five years, especially. Yeah, for sure. And the a track record's important. I think some level of, you know, I mean, you, listen, you get you get at you you, you got to vet these vet individuals. You have to vet companies and see you know who they are. A lot of times, you can kind of pick up on you know, somebody who knows what they're talking about, who's competent versus not. There's an emotional intelligence uh, test that I think is really important um, when you come, when, when it comes to this kind of stuff as well. A lot of times you could pick it up, pick up on it. So. So Buck, you hit on uh, for a second there, the changing real estate climate. Are there still deals in the multifamily space to be had? Do you still see opportunities in the, you know, that market? I mean, you know, I think, I think what's happened right now, and I was actually, was on a panel with uh, Kenny uh, McElroy and, and some, and some others um, recently, and we all kind of, you know, said the same thing, which is what's happened is that you, we've got a very volatile 
lending market because of the rates. Um, and that, uh, that is, you know, not consistent with what sellers are looking for, right? They're, they're still stuck in an old, uh, you know, back in April or May when they were getting a certain valuation, they could get a certain valuation because interest rates are low, right? Now interest rates are like, you know, more than doubled. And, mm -hmm. and so, but if you look at the sellers, a lot of them, most of the time right now are just not being realistic with regards to, you know, resetting expectations on, on what, they can get and and by the way as long as they can keep getting what they want or getting close to it that market is gonna continue to to be difficult we mm -hmm. just don't want to get involved with deals if if we don't feel like they fit into our algorithm because we're very you know data driven and if something doesn't fit the buy box then it doesn't fit the buy box now it could happen that you know we say well listen uh you know, normally we shoot for a certain pro forma and, but maybe we should look at a more conservative pro forma. And so people can still deploy capital and maybe they won't be making thirties, but maybe they'll be making twenties or fifteens mm -hmm. and that's not bad either. So we may do that if, uh, but, but I have a sense that what happens is that over time, um, you have a stability of interest rates. Now in real estate, it doesn't, you know, what the interest rates are doesn't necessarily make a big difference. What makes a difference is stability, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're a value add, we do value add real estate. So what we're basing everything on is deltas and yeah. we don't care what the absolute number is. We want to come in and know that we can create a certain amount of value and then get rewarded for that. And that delta is where we make our profit. So you to uh, maybe clarify one point you made there, are you saying that a rise in interest rate directly leads to a change in valuation? In other words, values yeah. have to come down if interest well, rates if you, are going up. If you think about it, right? Like, so you can't, you can't, this comes down to the, the simple concept of like, how much can you, um, you know, what is the interest rate you're going to borrow at? And then the interest mm -hmm. rate that you're going to have borrow at has to be less than the capitalization rate. Otherwise, you're going to magnify losses, not magnify yeah. gains. Yeah. So, so that threshold is the interest rates change. The cap rates kind of have to change. Yeah. Uh, in order to uh, facilitate that, and the problem is that they have not changed enough right now uh, to to you know to 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 really start buying. Now, that being said. It does create an opportunity, I think, uh, in general, to be a net seller, which is like you know, what we're planning probably in the next 12 months. I think we're going to be selling a lot of property. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So we've we've talked a lot about the multifamily side of things, but I know you also have other offerings that you have been involved with. So let's talk about some of those. Let's let's start with self-storage. So I know you've done some things with, with self-storage. Yeah. Tell us your thoughts on that sort of cherry picked in self storage. I mean, I, um, it's, I mean, it's, it's a business. So it's a little bit different, not quite as much as depreciation, but it's certainly been very profitable for us in, in mm -hmm. terms of our investor group. Um, you know, I have a, obviously we have an ATM fund and, um, the ATM fund is interesting because there's a sort of a fixed return involved with that. Mm -hmm. And if you combine that with, you know, 
what you guys produce through Well Formula Banking, the banking policies and all that kind of stuff, uh, it can be pretty pretty significant in terms of the IRRs that right. you can obtain on that. I think we have a video on that too, right? We do, yeah. You may want to may want to make that available for people because that's pretty compelling what you can do if you combine them. Um, and you know, I'm looking for different things. I don't, you know, I I'm not. I don't offer a lot of different because it really the hardest part in investing is really finding good partners and people who can reliably um, put capital to work. I mean, it doesn't really help to have if you if you're working with who you think are some of the best people, and then you know why try to work with other people who are not as good, right? So, yeah. um, so that's that's it. Um, Another interesting thing that I think we're going to have um, probably in November or so is we're, you know, I, I am sort of involved in this old Bitcoin world, Bitcoin, mm -hmm. some of cryptocurrencies. Um, and we are, um, we have an opportunity. I think we're going to uh, be presenting that involves Bitcoin mining uh, and mining uh, with, um, uh, with alternative energy sources. So basically going, uh, into wind farms and um, locking up excess energy that's stuck behind the grid that mm -hmm. they, they they don't know what to do with, and we can use that for mining. Um, yeah. So it's uh, what's cool about that. Um, not to mention, like I think you know, if Bitcoin goes up, even to you know thirty or forty again, it, the the numbers get stupid in terms of returns. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that. One additional benefit is that again, it's real. It's a real asset. It's real property, not real property. Sorry, personal property, and it can be depreciated a hundred percent in the first year. So, the thing that's cool is that say you invested, I don't know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars into something like this, you would get a K one in the first year, showing a loss. And so that's awesome because usually, you know, like I like to buy Bitcoin, but one of the things that's hard for me is because I'm so stuck in the real estate world where every time I invest, I get a deduction on my taxes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't get that when I buy Bitcoin. Certainly don't get that from stocks either. But if I want exposure to Bitcoin, yet I want the same type of advantage of, uh, you know, having uh, real estate, this is actually, you know, pretty cool yeah absolutely okay buck we couldn't we can't have you on the show without asking your thoughts on life insurance so yeah. talk to us just a little bit about maybe maybe how you came to find the concepts and just your feelings about life insurance as an asset class yeah i mean i you know as you guys probably remember i mean i it took me a while to figure out what the big deal was mm -hmm. you know i kept hearing uh, like i was listening to those podcasts back in the day and I, somebody would say you know bank on yourself or like what if, what, what are you even, even talking mean? about what, what does it even mean right so i didn't really get it and then when i did get it it was like oh wow that that makes a lot of sense you know with with banking in particular the idea of again there's so many of those elements to, uh, that that belong with the wealth formula. You know, again, you have the, the mass, you have the leverage, you have the velocity, um, and being able to you know utilize that to essentially not uh, not um, exchange one investment for another, but actually just take the investments that you have and actually turbocharge them. It was pretty 
compelling. Um, of course, then we got, um, you know, the whole concept of uh, IULs and, you know, some of these indexed uh, IULs. Yeah, and, and that the premium created, financing piece that we premium do. Premium financing stuff. And again, that's very much in line with this idea of leverage for me. Now, it's a little different because there's there's stocks involved there. But, you know, again, uh, I, I'm not saying I wouldn't invest in the stock market. I mean, if you look at it and you say, okay, it's 7 or 8%, I don't get super excited. But if all of a sudden you've got, you know, premium finance tacked onto that and your IRRs are you know, 20, 30%, then, then that's a little more compelling, right? No, it's a lot more compelling. So it all goes back to sort of this, like I, you know, um, people, people think it's kind of, you know, maybe a lot of people think the leverage is risky, but again, I think like, you know, um, I, I think good debt is generally pretty safe. I mean, you, you gotta be careful with it. Of course, it's like a bazooka and you don't want to shoot yourself. But on the other hand, uh, if you know how to use it and if you are using it responsibly, it can really change your life. Yeah, well said. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to give ask one more question that I'll let Christian take some. And this actually leads right kind of on from what we were just talking about. And that is that you're, you're very much legacy-minded in the way yeah. that you view passing your estate on to your girls. Yeah. So what are some key points as it relates to this kind of legacy concept that you've learned and started to implement that people could benefit from? Well, you know, um, so after, I feel like after a certain amount, um, after I, I felt like I had a certain amount of wealth, um, it became less about me, you know, trying to pay the bills and more about figuring out like what's important to me. And like, for me, you know, I have three daughters, they're little, they're 13, nine and seven. And, you know, the most important thing for me is to make sure that they're secure, right? Mm -hmm. That's really important. So I think that um, for me, even though there's all these tremendous opportunities with insurance products, when it comes to um, when it comes to say you know building a some kind of a, uh, a retirement income and and all that stuff, mm -hmm. that is not as big of a concern for me. Like I'm not really worried about having income, so. Um, Instead, I start looking at some of these policies and saying, well, how can I make sure that my girls, even if I screw everything up, mm -hmm. right? Like totally screw everything else up that my girls are going to be fine. And so I um, really started looking at, you know, some of these policies um, from a, from a legacy perspective more, like even with premium finance, the idea of, of course, uh, being that you could end up with a bunch of money that you could use. But on the other hand, the leverage also over time helps you create a huge amount of, 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 you know, insurance and payouts to your children. So if you right. decide you don't need to use it, it's going to go to them as well. So, so I think for me, like, I mean, that's been a major shift. And I think um, a lot of it comes down to like, when you feel like, okay, I've, I have enough to live and I have enough money for what I want to do. Um, and you bring people into the world and you have, in my opinion, some responsibility, if you are able to, to, to help, you know, pass on that wealth to them. And I think, you know, there's obviously other advantages just with insurance, you, you know, you guys talk about, and, and especially with the higher net worth clients that, you know, I think are important as it comes to state planning and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
a lot of people don't think about estate planning and it's the, the weird thing about it is that I think a lot more people are going to be affected by it than they think they are because right now, you know, we've got these limits. Like if you're a married couple, it's 22 million, 11 million on your own. Um, but that's going to go down. I mean, there's just yeah. been so many attempts at knocking that down. So I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being closer to 5 million. And at 5 million, now you're talking about a pretty significant, I mean, probably a, a significant portion of my uh, my investor group, you know, is is got a net worth of that already. Yeah. And if you multiply that times, you know, uh, the next 20, 30, 40 years, however many years they live, I mean, they're, they're going to be over these estate numbers pretty oh, quickly. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's where I think that another, you know, the, that whole concept of using life insurance as part of a strategy is really, really, really important. And um, I, I, I think it's, I personally think it's probably the most neglected uh, when it comes to like, I have, you know, I have a lot of high net worth friends and entrepreneurs and you know, a lot of them do use premium finance and other types mm-hmm. of tools like this, but some of them, you know, they just don't think about estate planning. They just don't think about it. Like, I don't know, like people are afraid of it. Maybe they're superstitious, Yeah. but it, it just creates such a mess for your family if, if you don't do it. So, yeah, like you said, and the, the rules are scheduled or the limits are already scheduled to go down dramatically. Um, so yeah. you kind of get a win on both sides, right? You can, you can hold a policy. Well, as an example, right, you could use a policy to invest through, and then you can decide later on if it makes sense to use it to use it as an income vehicle or if it makes sense to use it as a state planning play. But either right. way, you're kind of building an asset and creating a win. Okay, Buck, before we let you go, um, we need a few more words of wisdom. As a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses, um, how have you managed up to this point to kind of balance that that balance between life and work and, you know, being a crazy entrepreneur? Uh, well, I think it's, you know, the, the thing about building successful businesses, I think is a lot of work on the front end. But then once you create something, a lot of times you, you know, you're, I don't know, I wouldn't say autopilot, but like the, what you're doing is you're managing and making sure that that machine that you built is functioning mm-hmm. properly. And that's, um, that ends up being, you know, a lot less work. So, I mean, I don't, I certainly don't think I work nearly as much as most people, you know, certainly physicians and stuff that are listening to me. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think that's also, by the way, a way to determine whether you are like a sort of a true business owner or if you just own a job, right? Mm. You own a job. Yeah. You're going to work like crazy because it just, you know, every, every you're getting paid for your time. But once you can dissociate that, then you're actually a true business owner. And that's in my opinion, what the goal of entrepreneurship really is. Mm. Yeah. You have to be able to step away from it. Right. Well, yeah. And there needs to be a dissociation between the amount of money you make compared to the amount of time you spend. They can't be a linear relationship, mm-hmm. right? They're, in fact, I would say that like there should be no significant relationship between those things. And that's a huge difference between somebody who you know, works for a living and someone's a business owner for a living. Mm. 
Good stuff. Okay, Buck. Well, we're going to let you go, but what are the best ways uh, for people to connect with you? Yeah. So obviously, uh, Wealth Formula Podcast, uh, you guys are very familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, wealthformula.com. Uh, we have an event coming up October 7th and 8th. If you're, if anyone's interested, go to wealthformulaevents.com. And that's going to be kind of cool. Actually, I don't know you guys know, but we're talking in, in the morning, we're doing personal finance. In the afternoon, we're doing longevity. Uh, yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah. So it should be interesting. Okay. Well, we're excited to hear about it. Okay, right. Buck. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's thanks, uh, been awesome. We'll talk again soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.